Welcome to Count Me In with Dell and Deanna. Today we feature a thoughtful conversation with Cindy Wiles, Professor of Mathematics at California State Channel Islands and Secretary of the Mathematical Association of America. Cindy grew up in Southern California with a small interlude in Australia. She attended Pomona College where she was a student athlete majoring in math and she earned her PhD at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She cares deeply about providing access to a quality education and has co-authored two five-year, $6 million Hispanic-serving institution STEM grants to provide academic support for undergraduates studying STEM and pedagogical renewal for faculty. This conversation highlights the importance of saying yes to what is most meaningful, of amplifying the voices of students and colleagues, of building intentional networks, and of making exercise, especially in the ocean, a part of every day. So please join us as we talk with Dr. Cindy Wiles. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Cindy. How are you? Doing all right. How are you? All right. So we're so glad you agreed to meet with us. And we like to start our podcast by asking you to tell your story. But we want to break it up a little bit. Just let's start with little Cindy all the way up through college to when you start college. That that feels like a big chunk. But yeah, little Cindy (laughs) was um, born and raised in Southern California. I've always liked that I have Oceanside. I mean, that always sounded like such an attractive, cool place, although I never lived there. I was born there as my parents were in the middle of moving to where I mostly grew up. And I was a month premature, so kind of complicated things, I think. Um, But yeah, grew up in Southern California, kind of suburbia. My dad was commuting closer towards LA for his work. My mom worked in schools. I have two older sisters and a younger brother. Um, There was was about a year and a half, though, where we went to Australia for for that period of time. So that's the unusual part of the childhood, perhaps. Um, And that was right in the center of the continent, very isolated place. You know, you're a kid, you just go where your family takes you. It's only later do you look back and go, that was kind of different. <laughs> um, that, that's where I actually started school, mm-hmm. um, which is maybe relevant when I came back and was like in first or second grade. I picked up the Australian way of speaking and my teachers couldn't understand me. So, that, you know, for an introverted little kid, that kind of added a little bit of trauma. Like, you know, I said it once, you're not going to make me say it again, are you? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so. why, why did they yeah, speak so, so, Australia? What was in Australia? So, so right in the middle of the continent is a, is a joint uh, U.S.-Australian satellite tracking base. And I guess they were actually building it at the time. So my dad was in early on, like, the whole satellite stuff. Um, he didn't tell, talk about his work at the time. My family didn't talk about itself a lot in general. Um, so it wasn't until he retired and we got to go to a rose for, like, oh, and it was probably defense-oriented. Oops. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's just, you know, that was, it was just an interesting place to be. You realize more as, as later on looking back. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where I started school. We had, you know, memory being, you know, dressed up as one of four and 20 blackbirds in a pie for the local parade. <laughs> uh, memories of, they did, they did Henley on the Todd. The Todd is a dry riverbed. Mm-hmm. So this was one of the big annual event where you would, uh, I think they took like canoes and cut holes out and you'd pick them up and run with them. The, you know, the men would, of course, that was the, family thing and the women all watched and applauded and brought the picnic foods I think it was pretty traditional in that way uh-huh. okay so you came back from Australia you were in first or second grade as forward <laughs> public school yeah rode our bikes there I was a big bookworm uh, riding our bikes my, my older sisters and I would ride together sometimes sometimes I rode by myself um, but I remember all four of us at some point being allowed to ride our bikes you know kind of 
little, four little ducklings going off uh, single file on bikes to go to the local library on Saturdays. We were all total bookworms. Uh, but we also liked being outside most three of the four of us, I think. I, I liked books so much that I uh, remember crashing into the back of a parked car because I was reading while I was writing, and uh, <laughs> that cured me of that. That was that was not fun, but uh, yeah, I mean, just you know, basic, decent childhood, kind of strict Midwestern parents. Um, so TV wasn't really a thing, except for maybe if they wanted to get rid of us on a Friday evening, we could watch. It was the Donnie Marie Show? It was like a special treat. Remember mm-hmm. that one? Mm-hmm. So yeah. <laughs> But, you know, sports to, to, you know, a moderate extent, not the kind of crazy, you know, you, you hear about little league parents. They were like, yeah, you can do that. See, I've brought your bike there, basically. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, just, just you know, decent schools, nice neighborhood, Southern California. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty nice life. You said your mother was in education? Yeah, she, um, they, they both moved from Michigan, like, right after they got married. And um, she started out, I don't know, I think she started out as an ESL teacher. She moved to California and at some point she's like, oh, well, I need to learn Spanish and went and like did courses in Mexico and stuff like that. But she was an ESL teacher early on and then became a bilingual education teacher mm-hmm. um, and then became at some point kind of rose to be the bilingual education coordinator for the whole district, mm-hmm. the, the district in the city next door. Um, which actually had, you know, the, that whole career arc of hers had a big influence because it was, it was pretty much like white suburbia I lived in. And, you know, there weren't a lot of kids of color in my schools, but my mom would be taking her kids on field trips. And sometimes my little brother and I would get to go. And so, you know, just her interest, I think, in languages and cultures, and then led me to have more exposure and also develop, you know, a parallel interest. Mm-hmm. So there was that. Are you, bang- are you bilingual? Depends whom you ask. Um, <laughs> I, I speak with varying levels of fluency, um, three English languages besides English. They're all European, though. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the real challenge is learning an Asian language. Maybe that's next. So tell us about your college experience. So I went to a little college, which I would not have predicted. Um, I was I was a high school athlete, pretty mediocre, but pretty into it. And I think in my junior year, I was at you know the the regional, like the kind of the championship level swim meet, and. Uh, this woman walks up and introduces herself. And again, I'm very, very shy. So I'm like, please don't ask me to talk to strangers. And then I get a postcard who says, you know, hey, you should look at this, this school. And I was really flattered because, again, totally mediocre athlete. Um, and this was all pre-electronic communication. So I sent the postcard back. And I'm like, yeah, tell me more. But really, I'm interested in playing basketball. And then so the basketball coaches recruited me. And, you know, I looked, I looked at three, I think I applied to three or four big schools. And then this one little one. And that's where I ended up going. And, and it, uh, Pomona College, I'll give them due credit. I th- I'm sure they changed my life. Um, I think I would have graduated, but I don't think I would have found the love for learning I did there. Uh, I think just, you know, the small classes and, the, you know, kind of being pushed and being around people that were, you know, that, that provided intellectual challenges mm-hmm. uh, was just really good for me. And mm-hmm. kind of thrived in that environment. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone in particular there that you, you, what really, you know, some students major in a, in a particular person instead of in a field because they find someone they really want to be like or emulate? Yeah. So funny story. I actually have like the minimum math major possible. Mm-hmm. Like the, the class after mine had an additional two classes required. So I was like the last class to graduate with those smaller requirements. And I had the minimum. Um, my college was career was kind of a 
a game of keeping all my options open. So I actually didn't declare a math major until my senior year. It was, it was kind of, I never intended my freshman year was like anything but math and science. <laughs> my sophomore year was like, eh, I'll take a little more math because why not? Um, but I was, I was still kind of weighing a lot of things. But I will mention Stan Hills. Um, looking to see if there's nods of recognition. He was a dean of some sort, but he still taught one class a year, a semester, and just his enthusiasm for it uh, was so remarkable. He taught combinatorics, which is the, the one course I took from him. I mean, mm-hmm. I had very good faculty throughout my undergraduate career, um, but I do remember Stan partly because it was my field, but partly because he was a world-class badminton player. And so he got the part where athletics were also important to me. And, you know, I, I saw him, he used to have the Olympic, what do they call that? There was like a training ground for the Olympics. It was like a national event. And I saw him at the one in Oklahoma, you know, way back when. And it was like, look, we're the only two Pomona College people here. Because it wasn't exactly an athletic factory. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so Stan, I remember actually lots of the math faculty. But what I think was remarkable about my relationships with them was, you know, I wasn't by far was not their best student. I wasn't obviously graduate school bound, but they just, they liked you as people. You know, they kind of accepted you and welcomed you as people. And I think that's really the biggest takeaway from, from my, my interactions with them. Of course, I looked up to them like crazy. And only later did I find out how incredibly accomplished they were. You know, they were my professors, but I didn't know anything about you know, their research records or their involvement mm-hmm. in other things at the time. Mm-hmm. Can I take you back a little bit further? Um, and back to uh, growing up, and were there any people who really helped you along the way? People who um, helped you become who you are, or um, helped you um, understand life in a different way, find a different passion? You know, I think my parents, more by example, um, you know, I've given them credit. Uh, in, in, you know, you have a chance to talk to, to different sets of people at times, and that. They raised all four of their kids to to make you know to value education, mm-hmm. to have the tools to pursue it, and then to go out and be independent essentially and think for themselves mm-hmm. and, and be financially independent. Um, and I think that's worth so much more than any kind of financial inheritance. So I, um, just kind of the lessons, you know, the demonstration. And they're also in their own right very interesting people. It wasn't like my mom sacrificed her career, her interests, and and subsumed her personality to raise us. I mean, she didn't find job in my humble opinion, raising us, but she kept pursuing her own interests at the same time. You know, she retired early from the school district and became a travel writer and has been you know, all over the world and really focusing on cultures and peoples. Um, and, and, and it's still, a, a, I probably shouldn't say how old she is, I'll just say in her 90s. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she's working on finishing a book and it's a very different kind of book. So it's like just that example of... Um, yeah, basically being independent and following intellectual pursuits and, 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 and continuing to kind of grow and learn throughout a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big influence on me. Mm-hmm. Other, I mean, neighborhood people, I, I would want to give a nod to uh, Mrs. Robinson, Mrs. Erickson, who are the, I think probably the junior high level Girl Scout leaders, but my family didn't go camping, but the Girl Scout troop did. And, you know, thinking back how they would sacrifice a week of their spring break to take a bunch of, you know, early teenagers camping. I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, I loved it. And that's something I still do. Um, I don't, I don't have super like detailed childhood memories, but I think, I think I just had a lot of unrecognized help 
Like, so there wasn't one person who was my guardian angel or anything like that, but I think mm-hmm. I basically was lucky and that, you know, people just looked out for you. And you know, there's a couple of teachers I remember in elementary school and I don't even know why I remember them fondly, but my guess is they made, you know, pretty shy kid feel welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So going forward, what happened after Pomona? After Pomona. Um, so I did, I did declare that senior math major, um, made it, graduated, good. And, and then it was kind of like, what next? And I think by then I thought I wanted to go to grad school, not because I really understood what it was, but I understood what school was. And, and I, I'd always been the kid, you know, when I, if I went to a summer camp, I was like, this is awesome. I want to come back here and be a counselor. And so I think that was my most recent experience. College is awesome. I want to come back and be a professor. Um, but so then the question was, how do you do that? And I'd, I, I think I've been applying to the P, I had been applying to the Peace Corps, um, but it was going to take a while to get that resolved. So I went off and found a job in Germany for the summer after I graduated and then came back and big student loans. So I started taking classes at the nearby Cal State to kind of, again, get, get a little more math background, but also to be a student. So I could put those loans off a little bit. And, and while I was there, I got... Um, I started applying to grad schools and got accepted to some and, and went after all. Mm-hmm. So. What was your experience like in graduate school? Did you have trouble finding a, a study group or finding people to work with or were you comfortable in your environment? So I had two grad school experiences. I went to one, I was in the PhD program at the first one I went to. And at the time I thought it was me. I didn't have enough background. I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I went without funding. Um, and th- this is something I make a point of, you know, talking with students if they're considering grad school is like, learn from my mistakes. Uh, I went because, you know, I had a good name. It was prestigious. And I didn't know that going without funding kind of branded you as somebody we don't expect to succeed. I know that now. Um, and in some respects, I didn't succeed. But I was, it, it was a bad experience overall there. there there's some things I'd kind of forgotten about. Uh, but this past January, I was doing some writing. And, and some of the things that came back um, were clear. There was a pretty hostile environment for women in particular. And just as I was leaving, some women faculty and grad students were, were gathering in groups to kind of discuss that and starting by, you know, what would a good environment look like? Kind of this, this mm-hmm. ideal, idealization, imagination thing. Uh, but I did leave there. I was fortunate to get into another program and that, and that one um, well, a lot of the women there felt that it wasn't the best environment for women. By contrast, I was like, this is great. Um, <laughs> so that was UC Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. So um, that, I did finish there. Um, but it was also, you know, I was back in California, you know, back in a beautiful place. Um, and and there, there were issues there I could point to for both, I think, people of color and women. Um, but they, having kind of been through a, a situation I found worse, it was all right, you know, at least a finish sort of thing. But you, but you mm-hmm. do wonder, looking back, like how many other people might have under different conditions. You know, there mm-hmm. were a lot of people who quit with the, or left with a master's, um, which I think actually takes more courage to do sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were times where I absolutely wanted to quit, but I, you know, I was afraid to because I didn't know what I would do if I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll respect the people who decide, you know, this isn't for me. I, you know, that's, again, something I try and, and talk with my students about, especially when they're in that position. It's like there's this pressure or this sense of failure, but deciding something isn't for you isn't a failure in my mind. And then after you see Barbara, do you see Santa Barbara? Sorry. You see Santa Barbara. Yeah. So I finished in 94, uh, which was at the time I had attracted for a while, but at the time that was like kind of the nadir of 
mathematics PhD employment. Like it was unemployment was bad. I think 10 of us finished or were planning to finish that year with our PhDs. Only two of us even got interviews. I mean, so I was looking for a job in academia. Wow. One guy, truth to be told, didn't try. He was going to go on surfing safari for a year. So two of the nine of us even got to the interview stage. Um, and I was, I was in a relationship at the time that we thought was going to be coming on marriage and lifelong partnership sort of thing. So I didn't want to take a tenure track job in the middle of nowhere. And I did, I did have an offer. It was really hard. I mean, the people there were wonderful, but they also had, they knew they had that disadvantage in trying to hire. Um, but given my situation, I took a job at um, West Point, the U S mm-hmm. military Academy mm-hmm. and um, very different experience. I kind of always said, okay, what I need to do is think like I'm an anthropologist. I am embedded in this completely foreign culture and I am studying it, even if I'm not of it. <laughs> uh, and that was that there was a lot to study. I mean, it's, it's military culture. It was, it was the East Coast, much higher level formality anyway, even in your, in your you know, off, off campus life. Um, it's, it's not a university. It's the military post with university aspects kind of attached to it. It was an interesting place. But I really learned a lot in the short time I was there. Such as? Such as fairness, among other things. Um, the cadets take pretty much all the same classes, you know, especially in the, in the first and second year. And they were very intent on that they had an even experience. Of, you know, So you'd have, I'm just going to make the numbers up, 20 or 30 sections of whatever they called the first class, which was calculus and a, and a little bit of other things, maybe. This was a long time ago. I'll get some details wrong. But they had all the people who were going to be teaching that who were mostly um, officers who had masters in mathematics and then a few random civilians like myself come in and train for something like six weeks on how we were going to teach together and how we were going to, you know, you kind of, it was a little bit perhaps too restrictive. And you were supposed to be you know, basically covering the same section every day. But then when they got to the common midterms and finals, every chance, every cadet had the same chance at of excelling as did the next one. And that was very important to them. Mm-hmm. But also things you got from having chalkboards. I mean, they very carefully thought about their classrooms. They had chalkboards on all four walls. And at any time you could, you know, there was a command, take boards and, you know, you give them a problem and they'd stand up and they'd write on the chalkboards. And, and the, the ability to see everybody's work simultaneously was something like every, every place I've been since I'm like, we need this, you know, I'm pushing for that in all our building planning. Mm-hmm. Um, I also learned, to be honest, um, I'd, I'd read a fair amount. Um, I'm from a kind of a blue state. I have those leanings. I wasn't a big fan of the military. And I, I got to know some really quality individuals that were in the military that basically shared the same values I did. Mm-hmm. And so a different way of realizing that. And I think that was hugely valuable. So from West Point. West Point uh, went to Utah. Um, that was a, that was a more of a personal than a professional decision. I'd already kind of given up the job at West Point and said, I'm moving. Thank you very much. Bye. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, and left on good terms, I should say, but I, you know, I wanted mm-hmm. to tell them early enough, they were hiring anyway, and they could replace me in that hiring cycle. But, but again, I was, I was moving for personal reasons. Um, and then was lucky that a one-year visiting position came open at Weber State. So took that position, a lot more lessons there. Um, they were in a situation where one part of the department was literally suing the other part of the department and you kind of parachute in. You're like, what is going on? Um, also learned a lot about the state of Utah and its history and the LDS church and all those interactions. That was kind of fascinating. Um, and there's a lot of good hiking and 
outdoor activity in Utah, I will tell you that. Mm-hmm. But that was a one-year job, um, and the personal reason for being there was no longer there. So now we're talking, I'm on the job market for the third time in three years, and it was not a great job market. So then I, I got to what I, what I thought would be the place I would retire from, and I thought that after a few years, and that was uh, California Lutheran University in Thousand Oaks. So that's, and so I've learned lots of good lessons in those first two places. I was at each for only a year, but really I feel like professionally in terms of all the things you do besides teach and do research, I really grew up at CLU. Kind of grew up academically and professionally. Mm-hmm. Well, unpack that for us. What do you mean by that? You grew up professionally at CLU. So when you're, when you first start, you're trying to figure out how to teach effectively. You're trying to get your research agenda moving beyond your dissertation. And there's so much more to being a faculty member. Um, so when I arrived at CLU, they were, they were really, they were, I was the third of three permanent people. And there's a tiny department, um, several adjuncts that teach one or two courses. They're really just three permanent people. Um, and, and they were trying to do a curriculum revision. Um, or we, I should say, you know, once I got there, we were doing a curriculum revision. You know, I had never had any experience thinking about curriculum and what should go into it. There's, you know, the committee work uh, in very short order. I was being, you know, I think I became the chair of our curriculum committee in about five or six years. Um, it was a small school with, with a, you know, if you were willing to work hard, they would find things for you to work at. So a lot of the external things, I think I was the chair of the science division at some point, very, like in my fourth or fifth year, which is kind of crazy. Um, so I, I just, I think, I remember going to some sort of conference in DC, you know, with the provost and a dean and something else like this. Again, I don't think I even had tenure yet at that point, but you had a chance to be surrounded by the people that were setting direction, that knew a lot, that had a ton of experience. You had the opportunity to work on a lot of different things outside of the mathematics department. It was math, and, I think it was math and physics at that point. Um, as soon as I got tenure, the dean calls and says, Congratulations, you're now the chair of the department because there was some dynamics there that they wanted to change. Um, so, you know, a lot of responsibility at a relatively early stage. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. Were you able to start your work in undergraduate research there or did that come later? You know, I actually started at West Point and I wish I could remember the name. So there's a gentleman there, Jack is the first name. I don't remember the second, um, but, but a lot of the senior math majors would do some, they do some sort of senior capstone type project at West Point. And so I, mean, I was only there one year, but he invited me to kind of co-mentor a, a young lady who was doing something in the area of, um, it was artificial intelligence related. I'm not gonna remember what it was. But, you know, so I had the privilege of sitting with this person who was very experienced doing this and this very bright young student and, and you know, asking questions. I'm almost going to remember it, but I probably won't right now. Um, and just kind of seeing how that process worked. So pretty quickly after I got to CLU, I'm like, I should, you know, that, I just thought that was something I should be doing. So I invited a couple of students to work with me. Um, Again, can't remember the topic at this point. And, and they were fantastic. You know, we went to the Southern California Conference on Undergraduate Research, and I saw all these other things. And it kind of just, it did grow from there. Yeah, first, first I was just doing it academic years, side projects with students. Uh, but then thanks to the MAA, the NRUP program came along. And I got into that, I think in the second year that it was existed, and then mm-hmm. got funding to uh, for students to do that during the summer with me. And that, mm-hmm. you know, kind of really took off from that point. And what were those projects in? Were they in your field or what? 
What kind of projects were you having the students work on? Side notes. So I've changed research areas within combinatorics like four or five times. And every time it was either because I wanted to collaborate with somebody and they were like more interested in what they, this thing than the thing I'd actually suggested, or because I was actively looking for something where the questions were accessible to students. Mm -hmm. So in no particular order, I think probably the first two, Ron and Julie at CLU, we started with um, primitive, primitive matrices and primitive graphs. And you're asking questions about the exponents that realize their primitivity and patterns associated with those such things. I know I was doing radio numbers at some point. Oh, peddling numbers. Did that for a long time. And, and there's some fun things that happened there. I did that with several students. So I kind of got on a track a little bit of different kinds of numbers on graphs. And basically, here's a graph parameter. Here's, you know, what can you say about either can you can you it started out a lot as you know here's a family of graphs can you say something about how the parameters realized on those graphs but it, then we got later on to the inverse question like if the parameter if the output's an integer can you say something about which integers actually have graphs that realize that parameter as that integer mm -hmm. and that um kind of for about probably i don't know eight or ten years got a lot of mileage out of those mm -hmm. sorts of questions and then what took you to csu channel islands that's a good question. Um, there is a pull and a push, and, and I'm going to leave the push behind. Um, but I was already, so Ken Lutheran is obviously Lutheran University. It's a private school. Um, earlier in my time there, they'd done better about finding funding for people that otherwise couldn't afford it. And it, it kind of seemed like that had dried up a little bit. But I had some students that were from the region, um, young Latinos, that I got to know very well. Uh, my mom and I actually co-authored something for the, the alumni magazine, you know, used the almost corny title, Si Se Puede, but talking about, you know, their experience coming through education and higher education. Um, but I was really becoming concerned about access to higher education for people who had less means, people of color, particularly in our region, as well as everywhere else. And then you drop a brand new Cal State, you know, public regional university in the same county down the hill. And it's just intriguing to say, you know, how do you, see, how do you even start a new university today? Where do you start? How do, what do you hire first? What, how do you develop curriculum? How do you recruit students to come to this new place? And so I was intrigued by that. Um, I looked at applying the day after applications closed for the first batch of faculty. So missed that one window, but I think, I think I stayed at CLU long enough that I learned more skills that became useful once I did move to Channel Islands. So I got there maybe their third or fourth year, but it was really that seeking um, seeking a, an academic community that was dedicated to building a public regional for the region mm -hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. really provided access mm -hmm. and quality quality education. Mm -hmm. What year was that, Cindy? That was two thousand and five. And prior to prior to that, I really thought, you know, another another friend and I had started at CLU together. We talked about, oh, you know, we're full professors, and when we retire, we'll be coming back to the faculty lunch and telling the young folks how to do things. I mean, I really thought, you know, CLU was going to be my academic home. But um, you know, I, I, again, valuable experiences there, you know, fond memories. Um, but CSUCI has really also provided tons of challenges, and, and um, I'm glad I made the move. Basically. Mm -hmm. So has it lived up to its potential, CSUCI? It's funny. Um, not yet, but it never will. I mean, you're never going to be there. 
And we're, mm-hmm. we're looking to hire right now. And that's been actually really good for my attitude. We've also had, we've had like six or seven years of a new provost every year, a year and a half. And you know, I can't tell you how many deans and things like this. We've had a ton of instability in the provost and dean ranks for a while. Um, but yet, as we're, as we're interviewing people and as we're having conversations about them, it really made me step back and go, you know, the glass isn't just half empty. It's also half full mm-hmm. in this case. Like we have accomplished a lot. And I think, and this, is, I, I, this has been true of me for forever. I'm impatient. I'm like, we should be doing this. Why haven't we done this yet? But that the, the ability to step back and go, but remember when we started, remember in 2010, remember when we did this in 2013, it's like, you know, we have made a lot of progress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, our student body has completely changed from when I started and we really are serving the region. You know, we've, we've gone out, you know, and again, that, that community of, of colleagues that is going out looking for the resources that the state can't and won't provide, or just won't, um, to, to build the things we need to build for our students to succeed. We've made a lot of progress in those areas. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm very clearly about, I want my work to be contributing to those who haven't had access. And so, so one individual we interviewed is, come, he, he's, has a, you know, usually you're interviewing you know, postdocs and brand new PhDs, but he's actually experienced. And maybe I'll just share a little snippet. He was talking with another colleague, and, she, and you know, and asked, and she's relatively you new. Know, what disappoints you? He says, and she says, "Well, our faculty doesn't mirror our student body. Our student body is 65% Latino, Latinx, and the faculty is only 20%. And his jaw drops. He's like, 20%? I'm one of two, you know, sort of thing. So there's." Yeah, there, there's how far we come. I don't want to lose the impatience. I hope nobody nobody does. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, yeah, recognizing that it's especially I think the older we get, the easier it is to be cynical and, and you know grumpy about things. Um, so stopping to recognize that we have made some progress, I think, is mm-hmm. valuable. So in the glass half full uh, vein, tell us something that you're proud that that you have helped do in the math department. What's an accomplishment that you have? May I broaden that to the university? Sure. Okay, actually, I'll start with the math department. So I think I think our REU thing that we had going for a while, I'm, I am proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mentioned I, I was getting the, or I got the NREP grant. That was when I was back at Cal Lutheran. So I got that in like 2004 and then kept getting it for about five or six years and, you know, took, and that was in the time I'd made the move. But I had two wonderful colleagues um, that the three of us decided to go for uh, NSF, a larger REU grant. And it took three tries before we got it. You know, you learn every try. But then we did get it. And um, we we really wanted to do something that was not done at every REU. We wanted to emphasize um, basically native Spanish-speaking students, lower-income students, students who didn't have all the usual, well, have the opportunities that other students might elsewhere. And really, we wanted to offer an REU that took students that were somewhat on the bubble that had the potential maybe to go to grad school, but weren't already on their way there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did that through two iterations, and we ended up doing all sorts of wonderful things. We, uh, we intentionally brought in a faculty member and a student from Mexico. So there are actually students there um, and they were invariably ahead of our students in terms of their mathematical background. And so there's a pretty good message for our native born native Spanish speakers that pick up a lot of messages from society about whether they belong in higher education, whether they belong in mathematics. And here's this kid, you know, from Mexico, who's like basically kicking butt. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and plus the faculty members 
number from Mexico. I mean, so, and, and we didn't just admit native Spanish speakers. There was, so we'd have pretty heterogeneous groups, but there were a lot of kind of subtle things um, about the community. We very intentionally tried to build about who we invited to do it. We always made sure we, I think our last year, we ended up with three of our four research mentors plus uh, were bilingual, Spanish English bilingual. Um, so we, we worked a lot to do things that were complementary to the mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, I'm st- and, and I think a lot of the connections we made and the networks we built and things like that continue to reverberate. Um, I was doing, I just had my own little research group this summer. And since we all had to do it on Zoom and, and you know, not in person, I was calling former students that are either PhD students or co- former, you know, um, I'm not a statistician. We were doing something kind of data science related, you know, former uh, research mentors in, and they come in and Zoom with my students. And I couldn't tell you how many of them said, you're part of my network now. Like we've been very explicit about, you know, we're kind of building, intentionally building networks of support for one another as, as mm-hmm. we do these things. So mm-hmm. mathematically, I think that's, yeah, that's still one of the things I look back on fondly and, and still see some of the um, effects of that. Mm-hmm. You alluded to something you were proud of at the university level. Yeah. So we're a we're Hispanic-serving institution in HSI. Uh, we became that probably around 2000, somewhere between 2009, 10, maybe, which once you are, that makes you eligible for a pot of money within the Federal Department of Education. And they have these competitions for HSI grants. And we have now just obtained our third HSI STEM grant. And I've been a co-author in all three of them. So, and in the first, the first two, I had major roles. They, they don't use the language of PI and co-PI and stuff like that, but if they did, you would basically say I was a co-PI on the first two, and I had major responsibilities for, for you know, building the programs we proposed to build, and, and some of that was bricks and mortar and all these sorts of things. Um, but I'm proud of our work collectively on those. Um, they, those were specifically for STEM. And with the first one, we actually doubled the number of STEM majors with the entire increase being d- due to Hispanic and low-income students. Which, which is the target of the grant. So they're, mm-hmm. institution, they're institutional grants. You're trying to make the institution better for all of its students, but with a special emphasis on making, you know, doing things that really help Hispanic and low-income students. So, so that's, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I don't think people know faculty do is, is you know, go out and look for these institutional grants. And really, it's, you know, the first one was like almost a two-year planning process and writing process. Um, but again, we wouldn't be the institution we are today without those things. The state, you know, we, the state basically funds classes and maybe gives you an office space, and that's about it. So the things we've accomplished through those grants, what, what it's made for the difference I've seen it make overall in terms of numbers, but also for individual students. What are some of your goals coming up? What, what do you want to see happening? What's on the horizon? Uh, that's a great question. So in about a month and a half, I'm going to take over as the MAA secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and that's, and I've been shadowing the current secretary, James Sellers for the last few months. Um, and I'm, I'm really eager. I don't know if I'm eager to like take over from James. He does a fantastic job, but I'm eager to do more of the work. I'm finding it so far really fulfilling and interesting. I'm finding, um, the people that I've been engaged with around that work to be just really wonderful people. Mm -hmm. Um, it's kind of brought me back to the MAA while I was, you know, really in, engaged in these HSI STEM grants and I was directing our LSAMP program, I was doing more all STEMI stuff. 
Um, and so I drifted a little from the MAA because there's only so many weekends you can dedicate to conferences in the end. I was going to SACNAS you know, faithfully um, and, and, you know, different all STEM research, uh, undergraduate research type things. So I never left the MAA, but I definitely like become less engaged. And so this is really drawing me back in very quickly. And I'm thrilled, to be honest. I, you know, I love what the MAA is doing. Um, what I was doing with the second HSI STEM grant paralleled the instructional practices guide. Like we'd started this whole professional development thing countywide. Of course, we had Tensia Soto on our team. So she knew what was coming down the pipe. Um, <laughs> but um, it's been a huge support of what I've been doing. But now to get more involved with the people is, is really quite thrilling. Mm-hmm. So that's, so that's, I mean, that's, and that's a four year gig. So that's, that's a big part of what I'll be doing for the next four years. And the other thing is, you know, the other half of my job essentially is my faculty role. And I'm embracing that in a way that's a little bit new. And that I've gone off into the dean's office um, for a while and, mm-hmm. and then chose to return to the faculty right as we all went online at mm-hmm. timing. <laughs> um, but the different things I've done, I felt like I've developed skills and I definitely developed desires to contribute at, at more than just, you know, teaching a full load for the rest of my career level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then trying to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I've really come to very positive terms with is the idea of being the senior faculty member in the background that really supports the junior people. You know, when they want to write an REU grant, I'm all in, I will help them. When it's just, you know, hey, I need, you know, I don't understand how to put together a tenure portfolio, you know, for the probationary stage, you know, any, any way to support my, my younger colleagues. Um, there's some organizations like, uh, what is it, Chilfasa, Chicano, Chicano, Latino Faculty and Staff Association been a member of that for years. I'm willing to, I'll be on the elections committee. I'll do the behind the scenes work mm-hmm. um, and kind of really embracing that and, and, you know, having the institutional history and knowing how to get things done. Um, I'm just embracing the idea that, okay, I have a lot of institutional knowledge and it's time to not become less engaged, but be, you know, I don't need to be the leader in shared governance. You know, it's time for somebody else to, to step up and develop that capacity and, and that voice but I can, I can very happily support those people. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking forward to doing more of that and you know, being out of the dean's office, essentially. That's wonderful. That's wonderful that you take on this, this amplifying other people's voices, roles, and, and being their support. Um, great uh, privilege that you're doing that for people. I have some good role models in history and sociology and other places. So, you know, there's mm-hmm. kind of a group group to join to, to talk about these things with and then go off and do the work. So mm-hmm. I actually think this would make a fantastic article for the early career section of the AMS notices, because what you're really outlining is the evolving role as a faculty member to help faculty understand the important role that they can play in the lives of early career faculty, you're, you're basically being intentional about it. That's the mm-hmm. first critical step. Mm-hmm. I want to just go back a teeny bit and ask you one question. I realize you're not MA secretary now. Sounds like you're six weeks away, but you've been shadowing James Sellers. You uh-huh. said it was interesting and fulfilling. So we have a unique chance to get a snapshot of you before you're in the official role. So based on your shadowing, what are some things you're really looking forward to about the role? Okay, so, so here's, here's one thing I'm really looking forward to. The, 
MAA just elected its first non-white Asian female president. I'm looking forward to supporting that president. Mm-hmm. Also happens to be a good personal friend, but besides that, <laughs> uh, I, I, I really like the direction the MAA has been moving in. You know, I, when I kind of was like not paying as much attention, they came up with these wonderful core values. I'm like, oh, look at that. Awesome. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think it's hard to name a thing because really the secretary's role is is to kind of keep a lot of the machinery running. And that is typically not exciting to me. You know, I mean, I, I, I was being told at the time I left COU that I should go into administration. In fact, I would have been like a kind of a deanlet had I not that I stayed. And I was like, nope, faculty life for me. Um, but I've been getting this pull towards administration like my whole career. And then I finally went and tried it and I went to this thing and I was all in. And then a year and a half later, I'm like, I am not all in. Bye. Um, but and a bunch of people have heard me say this. I apologize if anybody's listening that's heard before, but there's two reasons for going into any kind of administrative or, or managerial or leadership role. And one is because you want to change things for the better. Um, and, and the MAA is like an almost 30,000 member organization. You're not going to change things drastically, but again, I like the, I like the kind of direction it's been moving in. And I do want to work. I want to do my part with the board and all the volunteers and everybody who's doing anything to keep it moving in those directions. And then the second thing is you want to create a climate or an environment that allows people to do well what you would do if you were in their role. And so here in the case of the secretary, the big, you know, big part of it is keeping the committee structure running smoothly. Mm -hmm. And I want to do that in a way where people feel that they're work on behalf of the MAA is valued, that they're, that they're, that it's not, just pushing a ball uphill that they are contributing to the overall enterprise and to the, the mathematics community and what we do. Um, and so while that's not like I'm looking forward to this interaction with this council chair, it, that's part of it. Mm-hmm. And, and even in the shadowing, there've been some places where I'm like, okay, you know, how about if I meet with that person and do whatever it is. And, and I feel like that's again, never done and hard to measure, but I'm looking forward to trying to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, this sort of leads into the question about there's just so many things to do in your day. You have you have your hands in many different pots and you're supporting many different groups of people. How do you prioritize things in your life? How do you find a balance between them? The question assumes something that may not be true. <laughs> uh, how do I try to find a balance? So I, I do think... Supporting students and supporting colleagues is very important to me. You know, so if somebody's got an issue and I'm not in class, I will pretty much drop things to listen to them to see if I can help somehow. So I think, you know, the relationships, um, but that that professional, you know, you need an email answer, you need a letter of reckon you forgot to ask ahead of time. You know, I'm going to give you a hard time about it, but I'm going to get it done. Um, but more like, I don't understand how to do this, or I just had this interaction. Can you help me make sense of it? I'm going to try and do that in the moment at, you know, kind of prioritize that, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, teaching is obviously a priority. Something needs to be done for class. I'm pretty responsible about that. You know, whether it's getting back grading in a reasonable amount of time or responding or preparing, whatever that is, um, what does fall off to the, you know, the, the times between semesters and things like that is often research, um, or sleep or whatever, but um, <laughs> you, have you know, I think, I think we're all trying to get better at saying yes to the things that are the most meaningful. So that's an ongoing 
uh, thing I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. So as a sort of PS to that question, what do you do to take care of yourself? Uh, I swim. I swim. I, I mean, paddle surf when I can. Um, I, I like to get outdoors. I like to, I like to move. I like to exercise, especially outdoors. I mean, the outdoors is really, really good for me. Um, and I, and I'm lucky I'm looking out the windows because it's a nice day out there. Uh, but, but I live in a beautiful place where the weather is usually pretty good. So I can do that a lot. Um, yeah, beginning of the pandemic, I needed knee surgery and couldn't get it for several months. And all I could do was walk, you know, in this kind of really anxious ridden time. Mm -hmm. Um, but just getting outdoors and walking at that point would like kind of help, help me settle down. So I, I do prioritize that. I get up pretty darn early and go for my swim or I have a friend we, we meet on the phone and run together while we're on the phone. We've been doing that for years. We don't live in the same place anymore, but kind of prioritizing it and setting up structures. Cause I'm actually like super lazy, but I know Thursday mornings I'm going to run with this friend and she's going to give me crap if I don't show up. So <laughs> I show up sort of thing. There's a lot of research that supports we all exercise better if we have a friend. Mm -hmm. I think the only reason I don't do ocean races anymore is I'd rather spend, if, I, if I'm in the ocean, I'd rather paddle surf. It's like, it's got that extra level of adrenaline rush that, that I appreciate. <laughs> so is paddle surfing like, paddle, sorry, on the East Coast, is paddle surfing yeah. like paddle boarding? It's paddle boarding where you're trying to catch and ride a wave on your paddle board. Okay. Does that make sense? So you must mm -hmm. have incredible balance. Um, I don't know. Yes. I mean, I there's just no, I'm <laughs> to that for you. There's just no way that you can manage that paddle board on a wave mm -hmm. without that. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. It's actually easier on the wave. Like when you actually catch the wave, it's actually easier than when you're like standing around in the bump and chat or trying to like catch it. But, it's fun. I mean, it's more fun than anything. It, it takes it takes a while. You fall a lot. And that's all you do is you fall. And actually, after a while, you're you kind of figure out how your body needs to adjust to, to do that. <laughs> well, you already said you already established that you were good at that because when you were talking about your first REU, you said you did three tries and you learn every try. So you established the oh. fact that you're willing to try and fail and try again. That's part of who you are. That's but that's also part of mathematics, isn't it? Like. Mm -hmm. Catherine Leonard is the one who says something like, you know, mathematician is somebody who gets up and fails all day and gets up the next day excited to go fail some more. <laughs> Dan, are we ready for rapid fire? Did you want? I, I have another question I want to get okay. in first. Um, so Cindy, Dell and I have been spending the past couple of years thinking about the importance of community and belonging in mathematics. And we would really like to hear from you um, if you could share with us some time that you really felt a sense of community and belonging or some time when you didn't, when you really wish you had a, a community that you belonged to and you did not feel comfortable. Could you share with us a story? Yeah. Um, so I did not feel I belonged at that first graduate institution for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I didn't have study groups. The people who had funding had offices together. I was working a side job so I could afford it. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't hang out with the math people because they weren't hanging out in any place I could hang out at times I could hang out. But there were also lots of other messages. And I'd forgotten until I was writing something this January about, you know, there was, there was the commons room. I mean, they had a space for, for building community, um, but that space actually destroyed community you know, kind of as the, the anecdote that captures it is when, you know, one of my classmates walks in and loudly announces that, and I quote, I can remember this many years later, the only women who do mathematics are dykes or ugly, he says. 
And, mm. you know, the woman in the room, I'm sure we're all like me, like, you know, thinking, I can put this on the podcast. I can't tell you what we were actually thinking, but, you know, <laughs> <what> it, <laughs> um, but it wasn't until I was writing this past January that I realized the issue was that none of the faculty in there were all male told them how inappropriate that was. They, uh-huh. they just let that go. Uh-huh. So, I mean, that, that's one anecdote, but you pick up all sorts of things. Um, just, you know, there was a woman's restroom on the floor, for instance. Uh, just, you know, you didn't feel, I didn't feel like I belonged, but I thought it was me mm-hmm. at the time. Um, you know, and lots and lots of conferences. And some of, some of that is just be part of that. You know, you never know, is, is that because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm socially awkward? Is it because I'm an introvert? You know, all of those things. But, you know, you go to a conference, particularly in your early years, you don't know people. And, and there's some sort of little wine and cheese thing and you're standing there thinking, who can I talk to? And, and it's, you know, incredibly awkward and that, you know, that makes you feel like you don't belong. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my, my colleagues from CLU at some point pointed out to me, this is, you know, some years later, pointed out that at a conference when people are standing around waiting for something, I'm always the one who will go find, talk to, you know, introduce myself to the person who is standing by himself. Because mm-hmm. at some point I figured out, like, that made me feel better. That made them feel better. And it was, I, I wouldn't have used the term community at the time, mm-hmm. but, but I kind of recognized that they were probably going to respond appreciatively and we'd have a nice chat. Mm-hmm. So, so I definitely do that now. Mm-hmm. Um, where do I belong? I feel like I belong at my university. Um, and again, largely a lot of the work I do is outside of the math department or you know, maybe the math department's part of it, but it's, it's in a larger sphere. Um, and I feel, I mean, it's weird now because we haven't been in person as much, but I, but I do feel, you know, I walk in a place where there's a lot of faculty colleagues. I feel like I belong there. Mm-hmm. Great. And maybe thinking about, you know, what are the physical signals of that? You know, people catching your eye and smiling or coming over to talk to you again. They're just, they're, there's a receptivity you pick up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that conveys something. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think I have permission to start the rapid fire now from Deanna. <laughs> Go for it. These are our fun questions at the end. And our first one is, when you wake up in the morning, what do you look forward to about your professional day? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I always used to look forward to teaching, and it's really been a struggle in this pandemic. Like, I have not looked, something is different that I haven't been able to put my finger on. Um, and so, so not looking forward to that is, to me, striking. I mean, I still enjoy it, but it's, I don't get up this, this past semester, I first back in person, I have not looked forward to that as much as I have in the past. So maybe over my whole life, I would say definitely look forward to teaching. Um, if I've got, if I've got any kind of interaction with some of my favorite colleagues, I definitely look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Um, don't look forward to the grading. That's <laughs> I think I enjoy interacting with, with certain sets of people a lot. I think I look forward to that when I know I'm going to be doing that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that is my students too. Okay. When you need to feel energized, what's your go-to song? What do you put on to listen to? Uh, anything Latin with a good beat in private. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a good dancer. <laughs> but yeah, pretty, yeah I've got an old playlist. Um, Juan Luis Guerra. Some of his, his kind of bachata stuff. Mm-hmm. Where's a place you really enjoy? The ocean. <laughs> also the mountains. <laughs> That's an easy one for you. Um, yeah. What's on your desk that would surprise us? 
Not a lot. Maybe fingerless gloves because I get really cold all the time. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> that's definitely a good answer. <laughs> and finally, in a single sentence, what would you say to a person who's considering pursuing mathematics as a career? That you will always be employable. And if you choose well, you will not often be bored. Very true. Well, thank you very much for meeting with us today. We really enjoyed our conversations. Nice to get to know you a little better. And um, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. See you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Well, it was great talking to Cindy. Boy, she has a really the si se puede attitude that can do. Um, what did you take away from our conversation? Well, I wrote in big letters in my notes, thoughtful. I just felt like she has such a thoughtful perspective. Mm -hmm. I loved how she, when she went through her career trajectory and she talked about being at West Point and at Weber College in Weber State, it made me think every experience matters. She learned a lot of lessons Mm -hmm. at those institutions, even though she was there for a year. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we think that the experience has to be much longer than that, but she was able to identify the value of those experiences. One of her most salient points for me is that side messages are not side messages. When she was talking about being in what was the quote unquote common room, mm-hmm. and she made the critical point about the space was intended to create community, but it actually destroyed community. Mm-hmm. And it destroyed community because of a seemingly side message. So her response really makes me think about these kinds of messages we say and speak to each other. I loved her point about they tried three times for their REU, three tries, and every single try she learned instead of every single try she failed. Mm -hmm. And she also, she has a major focus, which is to expand access to higher education. And so she's basically using that as a litmus test, including for her new role as a faculty member, which is she's going to be advancing her early career colleagues, but within the context of this goal to have Channel Islands begin to reflect the population more. So love this emphasis on a focus and then building your day-to-day activities around that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really, yeah, I, I agree with you. And I thought how impressive that she's spending her, um, you know, the senior years of her career as I'm facing the senior years of my career, but she's choosing to use hers to amplify the voices of students, colleagues, the MAA leadership. She has really, um, you know, focused on others, her whole career, her whole life. She has focused on others. Really interesting, impressive person. Enjoyed that conversation a lot. Mm-hmm. I love that focus on others. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, we'll be counting you in. Bye-bye. Count Me In with Dell Indiana is produced by the talented Aiden Martin. Music created by Casey Fenster and podcast image by Victoria Robinson.